All right, welcome back, everybody, to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Rand and Jim Thompson. Let's continue part two of the Tom Brevoort interview. I want to raise the bar a little bit in terms of some of the characters, the people we've been talking about, because I'm not like a huge fan of the Heroes Reborn stuff. It was not my thing. What saved me in terms of loving Marvel, this was the 90s, so I was really into Vertigo and DC at the time. I'm just a few years older than you are. And what saved me for Marvel was Kurt Busiek. <laughs> that he was starting with Marvels with Alex Ross, but then you came to work with him with like the second or so issue of Night Thrasher. Yeah, it was his Night Thrasher run was the first time we actually did a comic together. We had talked a bunch. He had been on staff when I started. He was in the sales department and he was only there for maybe a year before he left and moved to Portland and became a full-time freelance writer, but he'd been on staff. And so we'd had conversations and things. And so I think there was, particularly on his end, there was an understanding that like I had a similar enough ethos to what he had that I would be a friendly port of call, so to speak. Yes. I'm saying this as a compliment to you, that the two of you together, because Busek was the one that in some ways gave highest career accolades, right? You won an Eisner for Best Editor? No, I was nominated for You were nominated for Best Editor. I was beaten by Dan Raspler for Kingdom Come. Ah, well, okay. But that was mainly in relation to Untold Tales of Spider-Man? Yeah. At that time, that would have been just about all that anybody was paying attention to. I was editing a lot of other stuff, but in terms of getting on an Eisner ballot, it would have been from that. And then, while in my mind, Heroes Reborn is destroying everything that I like about Marvel Comics, <laughs> he saves it to some degree with Thunderbolts. And then in 1998, because you were talking about being associated with Avengers, he brings between Avengers Forever and Avengers with George Perez, he brings it back and saves it in a heroic way. And you were part of that as well, correct? Yes, I edited all of those books that you just talked about. And did you think that it needed saving? Was this something where you thought we're putting it back on track from where I wasn't necessarily going to go? Yes and no, which is to say at any given stage, my goal was always kind of the same thing. I just wanted to do good comics, whatever I thought was a good comic, whatever comprised that. And so, you know, going into Thunderbolts, it was an idea that Kurt had. He'd had it years before in another context for a pitch that never had worked out called Avengers Hit Squad. And so with Heroes Reborn happening, we had a retreat, a writers and editors retreat, where all the editors and a couple of key writers were going to be gathering for two or three days to try and figure out what the heck do you do with the Marvel Universe and with the publishing line without all of the characters that are now going over to be as part of Heroes Reborn. And so leading up to that, Kurt was still working on Untold Tales of Spider-Man with me, and he was coming to this retreat. And he called me up and said, I've got this idea. And he laid it out for me. And we talked about it a little bit over the phone. And then we came to the retreat. And he and I, mostly he, pitched it to Bob Harris in the bar of the hotel where we were staying. And Bob went, okay, yep, let's do that. Let's go. And that wasn't so much about us going, we're going to do the right thing so much as this is a cool idea. There's an opportunity here. The timing is great. Let's do that. And then when the Heroes Reborn books came back for Heroes Return, it wasn't so much about now we're going to fix them so much as what it really was, was those books all sold really, really well under Jim and Rob and those guys. 
even by the end of it, like they tapered off a little bit, but they were still super strong. So the mission statement going into that thing was really, we got to show we can do these and make them perform just as well as the guys that were just shown the door. And so everybody, not just myself or Kurt, but everybody involved in all of those launches was very much dedicated to, we got to put our best foot forward and we got to kill on these and load them up and really make them excellent. In terms of Avengers, I had read Avengers for years. It was a book that I was familiar with, but I didn't have a strong connection to it. My book was always Fantastic Four and still really kind of is. Oh, we're going to get to that for sure. Yeah. But so taking over Avengers, it wasn't so much like, now I'll edit Avengers and I'll do it the right way. It was more, okay, we're going to do Avengers. And Kurt and I got on the phone as we often did. And we would spend about three hours on the phone on a phone call because we used to have that amount of time (laughs) and talked about the Avengers and what we thought and which characters and how to approach it and all of that stuff. Then ended up with George, especially. George is a huge key part of this whole question. but ended up making the comics that we made and they struck a chord with an audience like yourself and with a young audience that had been reading the Heroes Reborn books too. Like those books did well. And so on that level, we succeeded in what the objective was, but it wasn't so much other than it was, you know, it's Kurt's aesthetic, it's my aesthetic. So yeah, there's a lot of us and really more Kurt and George than me, but there's a lot of us in that run, but it wasn't so much going, this is the right way so much as it is, let's do a good comic. And what I would say is, I don't mean to imply that Heroes Reborn ruined the Avengers in that they were pretty much in a down slide (laughs) way before that. I mean, the Roger Stern, John Buscema stuff was great. And then after that, they started to go down pretty quickly to teenage Tony Stark and stuff that was just unreadable. So it got saved, though, by Bursett bringing it back in, under your editorial. Thank you. That's nice of you to say. It certainly worked out okay for the Avengers in the years since then. Yes, very, very much. I wanted to ask you about the Ultimate Universe that comes in under this. Now, it was almost like Heroes Reborn, but done much, much better, and it had staying power. What was the consensus around editorial about that? Were people in favor of it? Were they nervous about it? It tended to vary from person to person. The Ultimate Universe was very much Bill Jemis's baby. He had a lot of belief in it, and he also tended to stock it up and give it the same kind of advantages that Heroes Are Born had had before that, which is to say you could spend more money on it. You could risk thinner profit margins. Those early Ultimate books, not only were they priced at 225, which I think was less than or the same price as the other Marvel books, but they had cardstock covers and they spent more on the coloring and more on. He really saw that, though, as the thing that needed to be done to save Marvel and to save the industry, because he felt, rightly or wrongly, that the Marvel books of the period were too steeped in years and years of continuity and that a civilian audience, so to speak, could not pick up a Marvel book and fathom it, couldn't understand it. It was just argle-bargle to them. And so he wanted to build a universe that would be very clean, but also a universe that would then be contemporary. It would be the 2000 version of these things. So like a year or two before that, John Byrne had done Spider-Man Chapter 1. And Spider-Man Chapter 1 was not what Bill wanted to do. Bill looked at that and went, this is stupid. You're telling 1962 stories in 1997, and no kid is wearing a sweater vest, and no kid is fumbling around with a microscope. You have to think about 
your audience today. You have to build these characters, keep the essence of them the way they were, but you need to make them function for an audience today. And a young, ostracized, smart kid isn't going to be the picked-on nerd like the Peter Parker of 1962. He's going to be much more an emo kid like this, because if you look at the pop culture of the time, this is much more where the zeitgeist is. And so Bill's approach on all of that stuff was kind of, let's do that. And he really believed in that very strongly. He associated with it very strongly. He was very involved in all of those books, and they really had his fingerprints on them in terms of that part of the mission statement. Again, to the point where it was almost an unfair advantage. For the Marvel previews catalog, Ultimate Spider-Man was the cover six months in a row. And the only reason it wasn't seven months is in the seven months they launched Ultimate X-Men. But So if you were just doing Iron Man at that time, you were not getting the same level of resources that were being given to these new titles. So why do you think ultimately, and really the book that was a standout was obviously Ultimate Spider-Man, but why do you think that ultimately Ultimate Universe failed? Well, I think it's a couple of things. One, when those books launched, and this is really a credit to Joe, I feel like, particularly, they were good. (laughs) They had good talent doing good work, and people really responded to that. On top of which, they had an aesthetic. They had an ethos. And the longer that went on, two things happened. One, a lot of that talent tended to migrate from the Ultimate Universe further out into the mainstream Marvel Universe. Once upon a time, Brian Bendis wrote Spider-Man, and then he wrote New Avengers, and that's a different place. And so the specialness of the Ultimate Universe as a boutique line kind of eroded. Plus, as time went on, as different creators rotated in and maybe didn't have runs that were quite so long or weren't seen as quite so special, that particular friction that the line had began to erode away. There were still people that loved it and were super invested in it all the way up to when it was eventually stopped in 2015 or so forth, 15 years later. That's a hell of a run for a line like that. And has great impact in terms of the Marvel movies today, probably more than the comics. Sure, sure. But that initial moment of excitement just couldn't be maintained at that level, partly because it got bigger, partly because its own continuity began to be just as long. Once you've done 160 issues of Ultimate Spider-Man, You can't pretend it's as new reader friendly as you wanted it to be when you started. You just can't. All of these things together basically conspired to take the ultimate line from being, this is a super boutique line. It's like the black label of Marvel. It's the special stuff over here that's really, really good and really pure to being, it's books Marvel publishes. Not materially different or better or worse than that month's issue of Amazing Spider-Man. You got Amazing Spider-Man, you got Ultimate Spider-Man. They're kind of the same thing. It just kind of depends on whether you want the peppermint flavor or whether you want the butter pecan flavor. So one additional Spider-Man question, talking about untold tales of Spider-Man and that revisionist going back and dwelling on the past. Is there any truth to that Ditko was talking about doing something related to Spider-Man and he got mad at untold tales of Spider-Man and backed out of it? Yes, although I don't know that Untold Tales itself was the reason he backed out of it. Ralph Macchio, who was then the Spider-Man editor, longtime Marvel editor, spoke to Ditko a couple of times about reuniting him and Stan for one last Spider-Man book. And Ditko had serious conversations with Ralph about this, deep enough that I know that he was saying, well, we'll set it during his last summer before he graduates high school, because 
Gitko, his opinions over the years had only grown more intractable. And he was really of the opinion that they never should have graduated Spider-Man from high school to begin with, because it's okay for a high school kid to be sort of insecure and to make mistakes and to foul up. But if a grown man does that, he's not a hero anymore. He's a failure. He's not allowed the same stumbles as a kid is. And so Ditko said, yeah, we'll send it during his last summer. They, you know, And so Ralph sent him some books for reference to show him what was going on and to keep him enmeshed in stuff as they were going to plot this out. And as Ralph relayed the conversation to myself and Glenn Greenberg after it all happened, he got on the phone with him and Ditko said something like, oh, I have collaborators now, do I? Talking to the Untold Tales <laughs> stuff. And it was one of the things where the very fact that that stuff was there and whether or not, I don't know, maybe I would have been egotistical enough to say, oh, no, 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 Ralph, you can't let him do that because it'll contradict Untold Tales of Spider-Man. I like to hope that I would have been smart enough to go, Steve Ditko, let him do whatever the hell he wants on that Spider-Man story. It'll be fine. It's not going to hurt Untold Tales. But either way, Ditko felt like this stuff was there. It was more of an impediment. And between all of that, that project never happened. It actually transformed. It turned into the Spider-Man Kingpin to the death book that Stan did with John Romita instead of Ditko. That was the book that took its place. But that, if things had gone differently, it might have been a last Stan and Steve Spider-Man story. So in 2001, there was also sort of a becoming the end of the comics code, partly because of X-Force number 116, the Allred Milligan, and a move toward maybe the precursor to what the Max line was going to be, that you were pushing the boundaries in terms of adultness and violence. Were you involved at all in the X-Force decision, how the tone that that was to take? No, no. That was all Axel and Joe and Bill. I think Bill had been looking for an excuse to get rid of the comics code because he didn't believe in it and he didn't understand it. We were paying these people money to tell us what we could and couldn't publish. And his take was, my judgment is going to be as good or better than theirs, and we get to keep the money. So whatever we feel comfortable with is what we publish. So why should we do this? The days when anybody cared whether a comics code sticker is on a cover or not are long past. And so he did it with theater, but he quit the code very intentionally. And X-Force 116 was the first piece of that, you know, doing a book that was deliberately, in air quotes, transgressive. And it's sort of a weird thing because that seemed like a big step, but it's not like Vertigo hadn't been around for 10 years at that point. And the sort of books that Joe had gravitated to as a reader getting back into comics, he had read comics as a kid and then outgrew them. And then in his early 20s, found comics again. And the comics that brought him back were things like Watchmen and Dark Knight and Preacher and Sandman. The more vertigo skewing, more adult sensibility comics, Frank Miller's work. And so aesthetically, that was always more in Joe's wheelhouse to begin with. And Bill was completely comfortable with that as well. He didn't see a reason not to do any of that stuff. So coming in, these beliefs that the characters have to behave a certain way, or there's a limitation as to how far you can take it, Bill's take on that is why? Why not? What happens if you don't do that? What happens if you let those restrictions up and let the creators tell the best stories that they can tell and work within your own boundaries as to what is right or wrong or tasteful and not tasteful? You were part of it in terms of the Max series, though, and talking about taking the boundaries as far as you want to take it. I think of that first page of Alias, number one. Right. You were the editor on that. That was something. No, I was not. I edited that alias, but I edited it 
at the very end of the run. Oh, so you weren't there for that first issue. No, no. Again, I was around, but I didn't edit it. That was Brian and Michael. And again, Bill, I think, loved that because Bill delighted in creating controversy and turning controversy into press, into sales. He didn't think there was any such thing as any bad publicity. And so, again, in a sort of Stan Lee through a broken mirror kind of approach, the idea that there'd be a book that would start off so transgressive and that maybe we could find a printer who will refuse to print it. And then we can make a story out of the fact that they refuse to print it. And that'll make people want to read it even more because it's the thing that they shouldn't have. He was very canny about how he presented that stuff. Was there a lot of feedback in the office? Can you believe what we just put out? Were people excited, troubled, any reaction? Again, I think it differed from person to person. Was it to everybody's tastes? How strongly or poorly did they feel towards it? I think as a series, people all liked and respected Alias. Whether or not they felt that that opening bit was just sensationalism for the sake of sensationalism or not, I think that's an individual massive agreement on that. It was there to make a statement, and the statement was, Max Comics, we're willing to go this far right up front, right on the first page. So this is not the Marvel that you're familiar with. In fact, it doesn't even have a Marvel name on it. And so if you're coming on board for the Max experience, this is what you can expect to find, at least at the outer edge of it. Once you came on board on Alias, was this your first working together with Bendis? Yeah, I think the alias was the first thing I did with him. Although, again, I only kept the book for like an issue or two before I handed it over to my associate editor, Andy Schmidt, because I was busy doing a lot of other things. I know I did by hand the two issues that were the secret origin issues. And the whole reason I remember that is I know I had a conversation with Brian about how the lettering was going to be handled in the flashbacks. And the way we decided to do it was that all of the existing Amazing Fantasy 15 characters spoke in all caps, and all of the new Jessica Jones characters spoke in upper lower as they typically did. And the very fact that I had a conversation about that, and that was something I was thinking about, is the thing that lets me go, right, that's the point at which I was involved. It was, I think it was 23, might have been 22. And did you play a part in the decision to disassemble the Avengers and then turn it over to Bendis and go forward with that? Was he a choice on your part to take over the Avengers? I was involved in that whole process. That wasn't necessarily my choice. One of the things that had happened at that point is, as we tend to do now routinely, we had an editorial retreat where we brought a lot of talent and all of our editors and got together for three days or so to talk about the books and to chart out the future. And we talked about Avengers at a certain point and what was going on and what the book was missing and that sort of thing. And Mark Miller did a whole little dissertation as to what he thought Avengers should be about and what was missing from it. And his take was it should be all the best characters. It should be what the Justice League is to DC. It should be all the headliners because that's what I wanted when I was a kid. If you had all the headliners in one book and all the biggest guys, like that'd be the best book ever. And I know that whatever, Spider-Man and Wolverine haven't been in the Avengers, but why haven't they? They should just be in the Avengers. They're the biggest characters. Put them all in a book together. And so we walked out of that day of the meeting, like clearly something was going to change. And this was a problem for me because at the time, Chuck Austin had only just taken over Avengers and he was leading up to Avengers 500 and the launch of Invaders and so forth. And suddenly all of that was being thrown out. And so I was very focused at that point on 
managing triage on that situation. And I thought, okay, so Mark's going to write Avengers. And I was fine with that. I had a history with Mark. The first Marvel work he did, he did for me on Skrull Kill Crew. And he'd done a bunch of things over the years. I knew Mark. I was comfortable with him. So I knew. And the next day of the retreat, everybody came back in. And while they were out, like that night, Brian and Mark were both staying in the same hotel. They had dinner together and so forth. And Brian said, hey, I really want to do this Avengers book. Would you mind if I did it? And Mark said, yeah, okay, you do it. So Brian came in and he talked to Joe and whatnot. And it was, okay, Brian's going to do Avengers. And I sort of whiplashed like, why? (laughs) Brian's going to do Avengers now? And I had no particular relationship with Brian at that point other than the understanding, the realization that he had a real favored nations situation. He was very tight with Joe. Bill was kind of out of the picture by that point, so he was a non-issue. And he had a contract that guaranteed him certain things that made him more difficult to edit than the average person. I mean, I say that Brian was never particularly difficult to edit or work with. I don't want to frame it that way. But Brian had aspects of his deal that guaranteed him things like artist approval. And so I'll always work with a writer or with a creator on who the other people involved in a book are. But theoretically, on any given title, the final call ultimately is mine, whether or not I choose to use it that way or not. And on a Brian book, it was Brian's. And so it's just a different situation. And so going into that, it was a little dicey (laughs) because I didn't know this guy and I didn't know where he was going to be coming from or how he was going to go. And also, and Brian has kind of copped to this later on. Like Brian kind of came in with a, I'll call it a punk sensibility, although Brian is not at all from punk culture. He kind of came in with, I'm going to burn it all down and then build it all back up in a better way. And the part that he kind of realized, particularly as fans started to respond to some of what he was doing, that he really understood was the stuff he was burning down was stuff that a bunch of people really liked. I had spent at that point 10 years, seven years, whatever, working on it. And you're coming in and you're telling me you're going to burn it all down. Like there's no way to not take some degree of umbrage at that. And so again, like Brian and I felt each other out and over the course of a couple of issues, like we got comfortable and we found a rhythm. Like he says that the moment he felt like, yeah, okay, this was pretty good and this was all going to work was the moment when I got George Perez to draw the very end of the Avengers finale book. And you know that was a big thing for Brian because he was a fan of George's and he always wanted to work with him. But also like that, that felt like a good handing of the baton. And I always knew that commercially New Avengers was going to work. There was no way it wasn't. It was the getting to it that was the rough part. So once we were there, it was a lot easier to kind of click in and go, right, we're doing this now. And we have to figure out how to make this go. And obviously, I worked with Brian an awful lot for an awful long time. And that was a very fruitful relationship. So as an editor on a group of characters that you knew very well at this point, were there ever points where you thought to yourself, well, that's not what Captain America would do. That just sounds like Bendis. It doesn't sound like Captain America. And if so, could you say to him, I don't like that. Or was he kind of in charge, almost not self-editing, but you said he had a lot of power. Yeah. And honestly, the answer to that really comes down to is it's all about relationships. So at that outset, I didn't have the relationship with Brian. And so I feel like it was tougher initially to get him to really listen and take on board something that I would say. At the same time, I was really in a defensive mode. 
for Brian's first script for Avengers 500, I sent him back notes. And I think there were about 16 notes all told, pretty much none of which actually got done, <laughs> as it turned out. And some of them, I haven't looked back. I don't have that set of notes anymore. But some of them, I suspect, were notes that were more about me and the Avengers that had come before versus where things were going and where things were going to be happening now. So it's a learning process. You build the relationship with the people that you're working with, and you win not by force, but you win by convincing people that what you're saying is correct. For all that I can look at something like the death of Hawkeye in Avengers 502 and go, yeah, that's not what I would have wanted it to be. I also know that that's better than the first version where Brian did a first draft and I called him on the phone or sent him reactions and he revised it to bring it more in line with what I had to say. So Brian was never intractable on any of this stuff. It was just always a question as to whether or not I could convince him that what I was saying was right. And what that meant early on was I very quickly realized I have to pick and choose my shots very carefully. To use an Axel Alonso term, I had to deal with the gut wound and not the scratches and the abrasions because I could get him to change a scratch or an abrasion, but the patient is going to bleed out in the meantime. So really, it, it was, at least at the outset, again, as we worked together longer, it became a much more simpatico relationship and we could talk to one another and there was mutual respect. So at the outset, again, a lot of this was probably on my end more than anybody's. I was just in a very combative mental state because of all this stuff. You were editing Drew Baker's Captain America at the same time, right? Yes. Did you feel like there was a consistency in the two Captain Americas in the voice, or was it hard to juggle the two of them? I didn't worry about it on that level, in that I was more focused on make the book good. In the broadest sense, as long as Captain America is Captain America, does things that Captain America does, espouses the virtues that Captain America stands for, seems to behave as Captain America would, I was fine. The other piece that was there at that time that has long been forgotten now was I was also editing Priest's Captain America and the Falcon book, which was a third title that Cap was in, and that also had a slightly different point of view on the character. One of the beautiful things about the Marvel characters and most of the fictional characters in comics is that they are broad enough to contain multitudes. And there are a lot of different ways of approaching them that are valid or can be valid. I wasn't at any point thinking about, well, the guy in Avengers doesn't seem like the guy in Captain America. It was more, let's make the Captain America issue good. Let's make the Avengers issue good. You had a great stable of writers at that particular juncture, especially on Avenger-related books, because you had Fraction working on Iron Man and Brubaker working on Captain America, and it was as good as it ever got in terms of those core characters. They were just great. And then you had Bendis and the Avengers, which was harder for me as an Avengers fan, but <laughs> it had some good stories. Again, I can understand that, and certainly... Having been on Avengers for so long, I'm in the weird place where I can talk to Avengers fans of different eras, and I'm either, like you were saying earlier, I'm the guy that saved the Avengers, or I'm the guy that destroyed the Avengers. <laughs> or both. And so, yeah, and sometimes both in the same conversation. And some of that is just the nature of you do it long enough, and everybody's going to like or hate something that you do. It's kind of inevitable. 
but that constant role of change and that constant need for the characters to be dynamic and to reinvent themselves and to push into areas that you've never seen them do before is all necessary to keep them alive and vibrant, I think. So speaking of destroying the Avengers, <laughs> let's talk about Civil War for a minute. Was there a point where people were concerned that you were making the entire Marvel Universe so unlikable, where Reed Richards is like the biggest dick on the planet? And <laughs> he wasn't the only one, obviously. I mean, the hole that was being dug for characters like Spider-Man, where it's like, where do you come? Did y'all see riding off a cliff but that it was going to be hard to come back from some of these character developments? I would say no. <laughs> Again, obviously, you had a strong reaction to that storyline. And that's fair. Like, every reader comes at these things from a certain point of view in a certain place. But there's no question that all of those characters have continued to be successful since then. There hasn't been any need to repair them or fix them. Any damage that was done to anybody was not lingering. It was passing damage. And it was mostly in the heads or in the emotions of the individual audience members who felt that way about stuff. I can say that there were aspects of Civil War that went further in certain respects than I would have liked. But that has a lot to do with the fact that a lot of those books were done by people who were not Mark. And this is maybe the place where I differ from the audience a little bit. Going into Civil War from the jump, I could have told you right away that the fan audience is going to be entirely on the Captain America side and not on the pro-registration side. But I can also tell you absolutely that in the real world, I would be, and most everybody would be on the pro-registration side and not on the Captain America side. And this was all being done. Like That story developed in the shadow of 9-11, and it came from days in which I'd pass through Penn Station on my commute to work, and there'd be National Guardsmen in full like riot gear with enormous AK-47s there in case something happened. And theoretically, those guys are there to protect me and protect the peace, but there's nothing more unnerving than walking through an area that's like aligned with those guys. And so being able to take that idea and go, right, if there were superheroes, if there were guys who put on masks, who had crazy amounts of power, who ran around beating up whoever they felt like it because they said they were bad people, and nobody knew who they were, and nobody had any control or oversight on them, you bet everybody would be like, we got to put a stop to this. So that question and that metaphor was very much of its time, but also very potent and very direct. And so the place where some people ran into trouble, and I'm going to point to him directly now, although I don't see this as a condemnation of him, so hopefully he'll feel the same way. But Joe Straczynski wrote a lot of the tie-ins on Spider-Man and on a few other things. And Joe, on this particular point, politically, had a very strong belief. He is absolutely 100% the Captain America side. That's Joe's fundamental at his gut, at his core feeling. And so any time he had to write a scene from the perspective of somebody that was on the other side, Joe is an excellent writer. And Joe is really good at being able to put his mind and his head into viewpoints that are not his own. But for this particular issue, especially then, especially in the shadow of 9-11 and the way the country had been going around that time, he couldn't do it. His interpretations of Iron Man and Reed and so forth 
he could not find ways to make them sympathetic in their point of view. He made them total fascist, didn't he? Yes, he very much, he certainly was on the most extreme end of that. There were a couple of other guys too. Paul Jenkins did a couple of things in the Frontline book that kind of verged that way as well. And so while I feel like if you just read Civil War, like the main seven issues that Mark does, I feel like it's reasonably even-handed. I feel like everybody in that seven issues, they come off as right, they come off as wrong, they make good choices, they make bad choices, and everybody kind of comes out evenly. Once you add in all of the other tie-ins and all the extended stuff, it's a somewhat lopsided presentation. So is there one person that oversees all of that on some level, or is it not that consolidated? There is in that, in theory, technically, I was looking at all of the various scripts and things for Civil War tie-ins as they came in. On a practical level, one, it's a lot of material. And two, I don't know that it's smart or right for my ethos to be the one that guides every creative choice that everybody makes in the course of telling a story. I directly edited JMS on some of the Civil War tie-ins he did. I was editing Fantastic Four, and he was writing it. And so everything he did in those books has a full-on sign-off from me, regardless of whether or not, if you ask me in the abstract, well, that scene he did in 541, do you agree with that? Do you think Reed or Ben or whomever would do that? And I would go, well, I don't know if I do entirely, but he does, and it's his job to write the story. And particularly when you come down to writers who are working in other editorial offices and with other editors, you're now negotiating through another editor to another creator about what they're doing. And a lot of that is a question of degrees. Again, for all that, I can say, yeah, Joe really had a point of view on Civil War that was not fair and balanced because he believed in it so strongly. The pull quote that everybody still uses, the one that ended up in the movie, is a Joe Straczynski Captain America quote. Tree of truth. Tree by the river of truth. You stand there. And so by letting him tell his story... My theory on it was you're going to end up having creators that are all over the spectrum on this. They're each going to believe the right and the wrong things are slightly different. And if you let everybody have the same kind of equal opportunity to do their thing, in aggregate, you're going to end up getting something that's more or less balanced. In practice, I don't know that that actually worked out that way. But in trying to make this all happen, that was sort of the method in which I tried to approach it. All right, so I have to wrap up this decade within 10 minutes, so I'm going to be <laughs> fast about it on some things. But Fantastic Four, my understanding is you were a big push and advocate to bring Hickman in on Fantastic Four to give it a new feel to it. Is that right? Yeah, I hired John to do Fantastic Four, yes. And I love that series. The two books, I mean, that's one of my favorite Fantastic Fours right up there with just very few that are actually as good as the Stan and Jack stuff. And this one really understood those characters. You were happy with it, I assume. Oh, yeah. Yeah, John did great work on that book. And I wish he had been able to do more, to go longer. It was a good run. He probably ended it at the right time, but I liked it and I wouldn't have minded doing another year or two. I thought the Death of Human Torch worked well. Do you think Marvel went to that well too many times between Death of Captain America, Death of Human Torch, and Death of Wolverine? I don't know about too many times. It's obviously one of the, for lack of a better term, levers that can be pulled that can garner reader interest and enthusiasm. And to me, on the one hand, all these characters are fictional. So they live and die by the whims of whoever's creating them at any given point. 
and the idea of permanence. As a younger reader, I believed in the permanence of the fictional universe, and I didn't understand the idea that people just make it up every month. And I still see that from readers today, audience members who will write in upset about a particular story development or a thing. And the way they react to it is as though somewhere there's a massive book in Lucian's library that says everything (laughs) that happens in the Marvel Universe and you've transcribed something wrong. Like they really have a belief where the fact is we make it up every month. (laughs) You know, we come up with it out of our imaginations. And so to me, the death of a character, the deaths in comics that I hate the most are the self-aware, self-parodying, wink and a nod deaths. I tend to think of this as a thing that Peter David has done more often than most people. But the example I'm going to point to is Grant Morrison, who's a writer that I like and respect an awful lot. But during, I think it was during Final Crisis. Final Crisis opens with the Martian Manhunter dying. Yeah. Oh, that was a cheap one. Absolutely. And all of the Justice League get together at his funeral, and Superman says, I hope he has a swift resurrection. And on the one hand, you go, well, that's somebody playing into the fact that we all know these are fictional characters and they're going to come back from the dead. On the other hand, it's emotional bullshit, because what makes the death of any character powerful is what makes the death of any human being powerful. The fact that this is an inescapable finality and a fate that is awaiting all of us. And if you can play into that truthfully, you can do stories, even if the character comes back again, that really carry weight and have an impact. And the ones that piss that away for a knowing joke, right? I'm as smart as the audience is. I feel like that does a disservice to the story and even to the medium. I don't like them. Although I would say Hawkeye was one of those as well, but yes. Fair enough. My question about Fantastic Four is it must have sold reasonably well because even after Hickman left, you guys were still publishing it as two different series. Why did y'all let it die? I know that was incredibly sad to long-term Marvel people to not have a Fantastic Four. How was that decision made? It's a couple of things. One was that John was doing Secret Wars. And the Secret Wars or the underlying idea of Secret Wars was something that he had come up with when we were working on Fantastic Four. And in fact, if he had stayed on Fantastic Four, we would have gotten to Secret Wars there rather than in Avengers. But once we did AVX and decided we were going to mix all the teams up and John ended up on Avengers, we moved all of those ideas over to the Avengers side. The reality of Fantastic Four, and it makes me sad as much as anybody else, is It's tough to sell a Fantastic Four book today. The audience today sees those characters as being somewhat out of step or passe. And not always. People can do good things and do good stories and do big stuff with them. But John left Fantastic Four, and Matt Fraction had a very nice run on it, and James Robinson had a very nice run on it. But all throughout those runs, your sales tended to taper off and go down and so forth. There is a point at which sometimes... The best thing you can do for a character or a property is to take it away for a while. Because the month before Fantastic Four went away, 27,000 people were paying attention to that book, maybe. And the month after it went away, everybody was like, where is it? Why isn't it here? I liken this, you're of the right generation for this, I liken this to The Flash. I was a huge fan of The Flash, the Barry Allen Flash, but I stopped reading it before it went into the trial of Barry Allen. 
And that was a good place to leave, too, because that was hard going. Yeah, yeah. But I came off, and a lot of people came off, and then they got up to crisis, and they announced that in the course of Crisis on Infinite Earths, Barry Allen is going to die. And not myself, but a lot of people around me were like, how can they kill Barry? Oh, this is a tragedy. What's the and you would ask those people, like, when was the last time you actually read Flash? And they would say, well, it's been five years, but I love the character and I love the and you kind of go, well, that's the problem right there. You've taken this thing for granted. You assume it's a constant. You assume it's always going to be there. And sometimes you have to walk away from it to make it work again. The same thing was kind of true as much as I don't necessarily want to admit it. With Thor, like Thor didn't have a book for a bunch of years there. And when Thor came back and Joe and Olivier Coipel came onto it, that book was a top selling thing. Everybody was excited about Thor again in a way that they had not been when we closed it out two or three years earlier. Yeah, it needed a break, I think. So between the fact that John was doing Secret Wars and that was intended to be ultimately a big, fantastic four centric story. And the fact that it was always difficult to keep FF going as a concern, we said, okay, let's make this, in air quotes, the last Fantastic Four story and take them off the board for a while. And then our hope was we would get exactly the reaction that you're talking about from people and build up to the point where when we bring it back, it'll be a real event and a triumph and people will really love it and embrace it again the way we want them to. So in 2007, that's when you became executive editor. Besides your job title, what changed with that (laughs) designation? At Marvel, I think more often than not, the way it works is first you do the job and then you get the title. Becoming executive editor was a huge surprise to me. I wasn't particularly working towards it. I had no idea that it was a thing. And whatever that year was, that post-Civil War year, when I came in to do my yearly performance review with Joe, which was always a fairly perfunctory thing where he'd say, yep, you're doing great. Everything's fine. But he told me this and I was like sort of stunned by it. And I was stunned by it for about a week. Basically, as executive editor, it means I have more eyes on more things in a broader sense. I oversee more people and have maybe a slightly louder voice, although I always had a loud voice, in the shape and the direction that the Marvel Universe as a whole is taking. Nobody has an absolute voice in that, but like I was saying earlier, it's all about being able to convince people that you're right. And so I went from directly overseeing a crew of four or five other editors to pretty much sort of overseeing at least half of the line. And that doesn't mean I was editing it. That means I was checking in. I was another sounding board and another voice as people came up with stuff. I could keep stupid things from happening every once in a while, and I could hopefully throw out ideas and improve on ideas that people already had when they had a story. And if there was something that was of value there, they could take it and incorporate it. And if there wasn't, they could discard it and move on with their lives. So was it more fun or less fun having the additional powers? Honestly, I haven't quite quantified it that way. Certainly, it's always nice when people listen to you. (laughs) But I don't feel like for the most part, people didn't listen to me before I was executive editor. So There are days when it's better than other days, and those days tend to be the days when you have to do something bad. We just went into COVID four or five months ago, and there were points where I had to call up a lot of people and go, hey, we don't know when Diamond is restarting again. We don't know when books are going to come out. I need you to like halt work at the moment, and I'll be in touch when I can tell you to start up again. 
And those are terrible days to have to live through, both for the people that you're working with and for yourself and the rest of your staff. Having any sort of degree of authority means you have to be able and willing to do the dirty work when the time comes and it has to be done. On the flip side, it means that if I get a stupid idea for something, I could probably more often than not make it happen. And so consequently, the comic book racks for the last 13 years have been littered with my stupid ideas, <laughs> some of which were good and some of which were maybe not as good. But I've never, even in the worst periods, I've never not enjoyed doing the work, doing the job. I've not enjoyed parts of it. I've not enjoyed particular interactions or the particular vibe on the floor or whatnot or where things were. But the actual work of making comics, I've never not liked doing. So it's all kind of the same to me. I'm going to ask you one more fanboy question, and then I'm going to let Alex ask you about Disney, and then he and I are going to go back and forth asking you sort of rapid-fire questions for the last half hour or so. My question is, I thought the Amnit and Lanning cosmic stuff was one of Marvel's great runs in terms of that. All of those books, all those series were so much fun. Why were they pulled or left and Bendis put in charge of Guardians, which never quite recovered what the cosmic aspect that Hickman had. He was doing in Fantastic Four and building a lot upon the Abner Lanning stuff. But what happened there? I think what you're sort of asking, in a sense, is why did this change? And the answer to that ultimately over time is always that everything changes. People do runs, people stay on books, people transition off of books, new people come onto books. I don't know that there was anything bigger about it than that. Certainly when Brian came in, it was with the knowledge that there was going to be a Guardians movie of some sort at some point in the future. And so I was bringing Brian in and Steve McNiven, who I believed in his first arc, maybe his first two arcs. The idea was this is going to be big and important to Marvel as an entity. So we put our biggest guys there and show that we're committed to it and we're behind it. It's in a way no different than we just announced literally this past weekend that Kieran Gillen and Esad Ribic are going to be doing Eternals. And that's the same kind of thing. We know an Eternals film is coming. We know Eternals is going to be a big thing for everybody. And we're going to put the best foot forward that we can with those characters and with that property so that hopefully... Not only is there some excitement in our world that helps to set up what gets done elsewhere, but also so that when it comes time to make Eternals 2 or Eternals 3, there's a new chunk of cool material that those guys have to draw on. So it was the same kind of opinion. If I'm remembering right, and it's been a while, so forgive me if I'm getting my timeline wrong, it wasn't that Dan and Andy were replaced by Brian. It was that book ended, and then... Brian's book started, I'm going to say six months later. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. So the end of that run was the end of that run. That was happening either way. And it was really only the fact that, oh, there's going to be a Guardians film and we should probably be doing something here that made people go, right, we better get on with this now. Otherwise, we might have gone two years or three years without a Guardians book as we often do with other properties. But there wasn't anything especially sinister about it. If anything, it was kind of the opposite. It was trying to do the best with the biggest guys that we had. Right, right. It sounds like you're like, okay, we're going to make this, want to keep this cool. We're going to put some cool people on it. There's a movie coming out. I would say probably maybe the question would be more directed more toward Bendis and why he 
kind of let go of some of the stuff that the previous guys built. And I think that's probably more of an individual creator rather than a Marvel corporate kind of thing. Again, I didn't work so much directly on that book. I had some conversation with Brian at the very outset because there was two seconds when it looked like I might. And Brian approached it like he approaches everything that he does. He stared at it. He read up on a bunch of stuff. He found the pieces that spoke the most to him. And he went out to try and tell stories that felt valid to his sensibility. And he doesn't come from the same place that Dan does or that Andy does or that any of the other predecessors come from. He comes from the world he lives in. But as long as he's telling his stories with emotional truth driving them, that's what ultimately will make them work. But there's no such thing as a magic bullet. We were talking about FF before, and John Hickman succeeded Mark Miller and Brian Hitch on Fantastic Four. And they came on to FF after finishing up Ultimates. And that's about as close to a slam dunk creative team as I could imagine at that point. That was going to be a monster. And yet somehow, for whatever reason, it's not like the book sold poorly, but it never quite caught fire the way I would have anticipated. It's like making a stew, right? It doesn't always come out. Yeah, you just can't tell what the zeitgeist is or what's going to work. So when it came time to succeed them, one of the reasons I went to John was I thought about who else could do this and they had done it. And before them, JMS had had done it. And like I had put a bunch of really big guys on the book. Maybe it was time then to take a guy that was not yet big, a smaller guy, but who had a voice that I liked and plug them in there. And that was John. He was doing Secret Warriors with me and was looking for other stuff to do, but he hadn't really cracked through in a big way. But from Secret Warriors, I could tell, like, he's a guy that's got a particular brain, a particular mindset, and he'll do some interesting things here. And he hadn't been a Fantastic Four fan at all. He was never a reader. So he read up on all of that stuff and he distilled it as he tends to do down to, I think, three volumes of notebooks and things that were his thesis on Fantastic Four. And that worked out. You never tell. Every time you end up casting a series, you take the best shot you can, whatever your instinct is for what the series needs, where the world is right now, what the last guys did that worked, what the last guys did that didn't work so well, all that stuff. But then it's ultimately down to what the audience feels. It's not math. It's alchemy. Yeah, right. Alchemy. Yeah. The stew of throw some meat, throw some onion. We'll see what happens. So then Marvel uh, having the digital comics in 2007, that's kind of a bit of a milestone. Has that improved sales or maybe even awareness of people get to see a digital comic and they say, oh, I want to go buy one. Did that improve as far as sales goes? Was that a good step forward as far as entering the future? I think it was definitely a good step. And one of the things that's proven itself out over the course of that time, for all that everybody, particularly retailers, were very worried about digital at the outset, was that digital doesn't seem to cut into the sales of tangible, which is to say that whether or not there's a digital copy of Avengers, Avengers tends to sell what it sells. And there's a reader that likes it, that likes having that physical copy, whether it's the monthly release or whether it's the trade paperback or the hardcovers, or hopefully all three. But there's a separate audience that likes digital, whether it's for the immediacy and not needing to go out to a store, or whether it's not having the space or the room to store it all, or just being more comfortable with a screen, whatever the case may be, that whole sales model tends to be additive. In terms of proportions, it's still not even half of our audience. But it's a place where clearly over time, there's the potential for growth and a lot of growth. And so I think it's an absolutely necessary step in terms of 
keeping Marvel and keeping the characters and the series viable into the future. And there hasn't been any real downside to it. There's a certain number of man hours it takes to prep a comic for digital release. But once you've got the comic that you've done to print, it's not that labor intensive. And then all the revenue is gravy. Yeah. So it sounds like it didn't really take away from hard. It just added more sales in general. Yeah. Whether those are sales of like the digital sits on top of the monthly or there are people that buy stuff digitally and then buy collections of the stuff that they really love to have it on their shelves permanently. And that's another way that that feeder system works. That's kind of cool. So now another thing as far as preserving Marvel for the future, when Disney bought Marvel in 2009, were you like, okay, here we go again, another corporate shakeup? Or were you like, hey, this is a good move. This actually is the real deal. I was relatively nonplussed having been through this kind of thing before. And what made it most or least unsettling, let's say, was that in the run-up to it, Joe had gone out and a couple of our other key people had gone out and talked with people and taken meetings with Disney people and hung out at Pixar and done all of this stuff. And so Joe coming back and saying, yeah, look, I've talked to all these guys. I've seen how they operate. This is all going to be good, makes that feel a little more real than somebody you've never heard of walking into the bullpen saying, hey, I've got mouse ears and I run the place now. This was, while it was a Disney purchase, there's much more of an aspect of it being a merger creatively to it. And again, everybody since then wants to blame Disney for whatever it is they don't happen to like about Marvel at any given point. Like It's a commonly thrown around thing in fan circles. And for the most part, it's just not true. So it's more just a basis of like the current staff at the time, not because Disney is diluting the brand or directing it in some way. Yeah, ultimately, all of the Disney stuff has been positive. The one thing Disney has had, and you've seen it happen over the last decade, is they've always had a massive global reach. Their characters and their properties in film, in television, as merchandise, as tchotchkes, they're everywhere. And that ability to get these characters out onto a worldwide stage has been absolutely invaluable to the point now where forget about like Iron Man, people on the ass end of the world know who Groot is, which is bananas. Anybody that would have thought that that was the case in 2009, put aside the fact that he was in a movie, they know that character and they know there's a little version that dances because they've got one on their desk. Yes, true. Disney does help that. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought the Planet X guy from the 50s would be all over the place? Like all of that stuff is hugely helpful. And really, for the most part, in terms of particularly when it comes down to like comic book publishing, our day-to-day isn't really any different. There haven't been a lot of mandates. There haven't been a lot of, oh, it's got to be this and whatnot. And all the stuff that fans fulminate over, oh, they've lost the whatever. If it is true that we have lost the whatever, it's because we lost it, not because Disney made anything happen. There's no choke noose around anybody's neck keeping them from making whatever imaginary comic you want them to be. That's why we haven't seen, Jim, Carol Danvers as a princess and Marcus <laughs> as, as Prince Charming. It's no wonder we haven't seen that because Disney's not telling them to do it. There might be a couple of other reasons there, too. <laughs> Tom mentioned fandom, and that was going to be my next question. We live in a moment with social media and things where I read in researching this, Just how vicious attacks have come against you personally, bringing up your family, bringing up everything from the comics gay community and all of that, taking it very aggressively personal against you because 
Bobby Drake is gay now or things like that. <laughs> do you ever get nervous? How do you feel about that? And when you're making decisions and you're fighting with people who are 50 years old about these characters, when you're trying to sell to a younger audience, how do you balance this and how do you not lose your temper? To your last point first, sometimes I do lose my temper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) But a couple of things on that. The first one is I genuinely like the fan community for the most part. I genuinely do like the fans and I appreciate and understand their point of view. They're no different than me. I was a fan and a reader. I'm still a fan and a reader. I buy and read books every week. Although now with Corona, I have to have them sent to my house rather than going to a shop. But I still do that. And I understand that psychology. I understand the thing that drives them because I've been there. That having been said, bad behavior is bad behavior. People being jerks are people being jerks. For all that, I certainly... For a while, I was a good lightning rod because I would answer questions on Form Spring or whatever. I have not had it as bad as a lot of people in this industry who have been hounded and doxxed and tortured and tormented for the crime of being able to do a creative endeavor that the people that are poking at them would dearly love to be able to do but can't or haven't. And that behavior is just reprehensible and it ought to stop. But that all having been said, I appreciate the idea that any given reader's experience is going to be their own experience. So if I put out an Iron Man story, whatever story that is, there are going to be people that love it and think it is the greatest Iron Man story that's ever been done. There are going to be people that like it and enjoy it and buy the next one. There are going to be people that are so-so about it. There are going to be people that didn't love it, eh, but it doesn't rule their lives. And there are going to be people to whom I have forever destroyed the character of Iron Man. And that whole range is fine. It's all about how it gets expressed and how it gets acted upon. In terms of am I ever scared? I don't know if I'm ever scared per se. Every once in a while, there was one during the Secret Empire storyline where there was one death threat that seemed like, no, that could be a legitimate death threat. And it came from a guy that had a history of mental problems and so forth. And That one went up through Marvel security and so forth. And anything like that we'll take seriously. But I also know that most of this stuff is just people blowing smoke. I go to conventions, not this year so much, but I go to conventions. I'm easy to find online. I'm not hard to get a hold of. And publicly and to my face, nobody's really been awful. Even people that haven't liked a certain thing have observed the social niceties when they've been there, either not saying anything or saying, yeah, I didn't like that. But, and that's fine. Like, I understand you have a love for this just like I do. And you don't like whatever creative choice was made. That's fair. Hopefully the choice we make next month will be better for you. And Jim brought up the comics gate people. And there's also just the flip end of it. There's the cancer culture thing of sometimes someone sees a panel from maybe 10 years ago. That was okay. Then now it isn't that group wants that person to be fired. It all feels like social media is adding a certain toxicity to the fandom issues that used to be contained in letters pages that you had some degree of control over. Has it ever gotten to that point in motion where you're like, I just kind of want to retire and get away from this? No, it hasn't gotten to that. And I think that honestly, that toxicity doesn't come from the fandom and doesn't come from social media. It comes from the zeitgeist in the world. 
we're in a very contentious period right now and have been for a couple of years. And that's tended to bring out the worst extremes of people on all sides of all of these issues. And so this is a symptom. This isn't the illness. When the situation itself changes or improves or gets better, that I think you'll see people behaving slightly better. You were promoted to senior vice president of publishing in 2011. So you have that title and the executive editor title, I think, currently, right? Yeah, I keep a lot of titles around. It's good for impressing people. Did that change your job titles as far as being senior VP of publishing? Or is that more a testament of like, this guy's been a solid company man. He's doing a lot of things around here. Let's throw that title there. I mean, what is what happened? There's more to it than just, hey, let's give him a title. It's not like my job with the VP of publishing on it versus before that was all that materially different. What it's a reflection of mostly, honestly, is the Disney structure. That within the Disney hierarchy and dealing with people in other divisions, it's helpful to have a title that makes sense to those divisions where they can go, oh, that guy's a VP. So when he says, whatever, Iron Man should be red and gold, he probably knows what he's talking about as opposed to anything else. It, it's sort of like, again, I won't say it was an empty or a meaningless title. I've got more responsibility with that than I had before. But really, the fruit for all there is really more about the internal political dynamics of the engine that is all the various Disney companies. Yeah, I think Paul Levitt said that, like with the Warner structure, that once that happened, then things were structured to reflect that, the new owner kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly that sort of thing. So my day-to-day hasn't changed all that much, but the title just means that if I get a call or I have to interface with somebody at, I don't know, Disney Parks or something, they understand instinctively. They're dealing with somebody on whatever level I happen to be on and not just a guy from the mailroom. Yeah, I got one more question and then Jim's probably going to ask one more, then we can close it. I got two more, but go ahead. Two more questions. There you go. As far as the movies, are we kind of in the movie age of comics where the movies are kind of driving a lot of the creative choices. Before it was like, let's get movies based on the comics that were made in vacuum without movie concerns. Now that the movie concerns are here, does that create like this almost, I guess you could call it a corporate synergy, but does that also reduce in some way the genuineness of the product? Does it in some way dilute the Marvel brand in that it's become a bit more movie-oriented? Or is that not real at all? I don't think it's done most of that stuff. What it does do is it means that everything influences everything. On a day-to-day basis, as somebody working in Marvel Publishing, what my job is and what my goal is always is to be doing the stories that, on some level, can be raw material for what studios does a couple of years from now. The most obvious example of something like that is I do Winter Soldier, they make a Winter Soldier movie. Their Winter Soldier movie is not like the comic that Ed and I and Steve Epting did. It takes a few pieces of it, it remixes them, and it's built in a way that works really excellent for a two-hour movie structure as opposed to a serialized comic. But it's raw material and it's stories that got a reaction and that got people excited that they can look at and go, we could do something great with that in film. So on all the books that we work on, we're constantly looking to be at the forefront of stuff. That having been said, it's not like the films don't have a huge influence over everybody, and that includes our creators. The example that we always use, and it's not the only one, is 
that after the first X-Men movie came out, everybody started drawing Cerebro as a giant round chamber with a catwalk in it. And that wasn't anybody at Marvel going, now Cerebro needs to look at that. It was everybody coming out of the movie theaters who draws our books going, that looked cool. And so when Cerebro shows up in a plot, that's what they think of and that's what they draw. There are times when the way the films will distill a character down or the way they'll interpret them or the way an actor will portray them will naturally translate back. I believe it is impossible today for anybody reading an Iron Man comic to not read it in Robert Downey's voice. And it almost doesn't matter who writes it or what the dialogue is. That actor is so associated with that character that you almost can't help but hear it as Downey when he speaks. And so there's always going to be that synergistic influence. And there are times, like I said earlier, we know that an Eternals movie is coming, so we'll do a book. The book we're doing is not going to be their movie. Will it take bits and pieces from it if we happen to know characters are featured or that they're doing something specific? That'll inform our choice making and our decision process. But the stories that we tell, again, the hope is really maybe this will be Eternals 2 or Eternals 3, that there'll be stuff here that they go, yeah, this is in the same way that as they do whatever films that they've done so far and will continue to do, they get to cherry pick all the best stuff from all the stories that have existed so far. Okay, very quickly, what about going for DC Comics from New 52 to the recent news and the basic destruction of DC? (laughs) Do y'all view that as a positive or a negative in terms of Marvel? Because isn't it good to have a competitor, to have a strong Democratic and Republican Party, to have a rivalry? Look, I want to do better than DC on the racks. But I certainly don't want DC to fail or to fall apart or to go away. I think the industry as a whole is better and stronger and better for everybody, retailers, creators, editors, publishers alike. If there are technically, in my perfect world, there'd be three companies at a certain level. And there tends to be more like two and a half these days. But yeah, I want DC to do well. I want to do better than them. And I work and fight every month to try to do better than them. And they hopefully are working and fighting every month to try and do better than me. And some months I win and some months they win. But yeah, again, I went through those Marvel layoffs of the 90s. And I know a bunch of the people that got taken out during this wave at DC and a bunch of the people that are still there. And so I know what they're in for and I know what they've experienced. And it's horrifying and heartbreaking and I hate it. But Again, all I can do is hope for the best, hope that things turn around for them and move in a positive direction and that everything works out. My next question is, some of my favorite books of the last two years have been published by First, Second, and or Young Adult in Nature, and they're really doing some interesting things. And Marvel is doing it as well, and they're very aware. And when Fan people sometimes at comic book historians talk about Marvel failing and sales being down and everything. I think they don't understand how much business y'all get from that kind of selling to a different audience, the book fairs and the children's bookstores and that. And I just wanted to ask you to confirm that and talk about that for a second. Yes, you are absolutely right. Obviously, we don't sell the same thing in through every chain to every person. And what a particular product does in one distribution market does not reflect what it does in all of them. We are very simple folk at Marvel. We like to make money. We like to make a lot of it. 
as much of it as we possibly can. So if you're looking at a situation and going, well, that book doesn't seem to be performing very well. It can't be making much money or any money at all. Why the hell are they doing it? Chances are the answer is because it makes a lot of money over here where you just don't happen to be seeing it. And we like having a lot of money and we don't care so much that it doesn't make as much money over here. At the end of the day, all the loot goes into the same big bag with a dollar sign on it. As long as that money is coming in and there's an audience there that can be tapped and we can expand the scope and the reach of the Marvel characters and further conquer the world, that's something that we're all about doing. Certainly that YA space has been exploding for a decade now as a category in publishing. And we certainly have taken steps and will continue to take more to expand what we're doing there and to capture a portion of that audience until we have it all. So you're not doing it to bow to social justice warriors or some feminist agenda or anything else. (laughs) It's because you make money off of it, correct? We are greedy. Certainly, there's nothing wrong with putting forth a positive message. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being inclusive and having comics that reflect the wide variety and spectrum of human experiences because we want to get everybody and we want everybody to feel like there's a place for them at Marvel. But when you dig down, we're a very profit-oriented organization and we want to have more money at the end of the year than we started with. And that's always going to drive our business decisions in aggregate. So yeah, the people that are like, oh, comic sales are failing. I've been hearing that since before I was in the industry. And again, if you bet on failure long enough, sooner or later, you'll be right. Because eventually the sun goes nova, the universe ends, heat death of the universe. It's a safe money bet, but I'm doing well. Marvel's doing well. We did well last year. We're doing better this year. Hopefully we'll do better next year. And we're doing really well right now in the middle of a pandemic where our whole distribution network fell apart for a couple of months. So the sky is falling rhetoric. If it serves some people and makes them happy, whatever, God love them. There ain't a lot of reality to it. I just want to close with saying that what I like about Marvel is it's still recognizable under all circumstances. And this morning at like three in the morning, I'm reading the snapshots of Fantastic Four that Dorkin wrote. And it's a beautiful book and it's just got, it's Johnny Storm and I recognize who it is. And I can't wait for the Mark Russell Captain America. And you guys understand your characters and we appreciate it. We love the fact that not only are you reading, but you have been reading for so long. I quite like the fact that you had a Kid Flash costume, even though that's not a Marvel thing. (laughs) Thank you so much. We try not to take your readership for granted. We know that We have to earn your allegiance one comic at a time, one story at a time, every time you go. And that's what we try to do. And sometimes we don't do as well. And sometimes the cake doesn't come out as good as we'd hoped. But our goal is to hit it as often as possible and provide everybody with some entertainment and some enjoyment and some joy in their lives. Yeah, something I want to kind of point out is that when it comes to Marvel and your involvement with Marvel, you are that Marvel company guy that weathered all sorts of crazy storms. John Romita Sr. was like that, like the way you are with that. And then Stan Lee, obviously, he was there longer than anybody. But are you there longer than the years that John Romita was there? Well, I think the answer is ultimately yes, because John retired in 96. Yeah. 
That's like 29 years or 30 years or something, right? Yeah, he came back to Marvel in 66. So that's a 30-year thing. But when he came back, I don't know that he was working in the office. He wasn't necessarily on staff. He would come in and he would operate as Stan's pair of hands to do corrections and things and work in the office. But even assuming that you say that that's 30 years, I'm longer than that. Stan obviously was longer than me. Ralph Macchio was still longer than me. So there are a few people who've been at Marvel longer or who are more long-tenured than I, but not many. Over 30 years. Wow. Yeah, more than 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're there longer than Ramita Sr. That's a testament to you being truly a Marvel guy, although it was from affidavit fraud, but still. (laughs) (laughs) But at any rate, thanks so much, Tom Brevoort. We had a great time chatting with you today. You gave us some great insights on some goings-on, and we're always excited to hear about what's next coming from Marvel. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for having me.